This, 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 this is mythical. Ear Biscuits is supported by the farmer's dog. Dogs will eat basically anything you put in front of them. And if you're Barbara, you will like <laughs> seek it out off of tables, counters. That, that woman is crazy, <laughs> uh, that woman being my dog. Uh, so it's important to be putting the right kind of food in their bowls. Right, and when you care about your dogs as much as we care about ours, you know, a thoughtful approach to what goes in those bowls makes sense. Yes, the farmer's dog is real, fresh, healthy food with whole meat and veggies gently cooked in human-grade kitchens to preserve their nutritional value. Just tell them about your dog and they'll deliver personalized, vet-developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. The meals arrive pre-portioned and in ready-to-serve packs delivered on your schedule. Millions of meals have been ordered across the country. We've been partnering with the Farmer's Dog for a few years now and they really are as good as they say. It really has never been easier to invest in your dog's health with fresh food. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com ear. Welcome to Ear Biscuits. I'm Red. And I'm Link. This week at the table of round. <laughs> oh wow, you would have thought that it would have been ingrained by now. This week at the round table of dim lighting. That's it. The table of round. Not the table of round lighting. In a <laughs> well, dim it room. is round. I mean, yeah, the, it, we the have a, like yeah, a, the light's round. a globular uh, <laughs> light. It is round. It's all, but, and it's not as dim as it used to be. Yeah, I um Is it, you want to quit saying we I saw that there was a post. We can't say that it's Kiko, there was a post and somebody was like taking pictures and like doing this um uh different strata of screens uh of how Ear Biscuits has gotten increasingly less dim. Well, it got really dim and for it was a little very bit. Dim. And that was because there was something was wrong. Well, no, it started off dim because there was no video. And we had guests and we had this idea that like if you create like a dark space, people are gonna share their dark secrets. And I believe that it it's, it helped. It's very welcoming, yeah. I mean, we were down in our basement and it was just it was just us and somebody getting into it in the dark. It wasn't a basement though. No, it wasn't. It you felt like a the basement. O- uh, the other studio. At the other Burbank. studio. It, you're and right. It, was the, it, was it the felt first like a floor. basement because there were no, all the windows were blacked out. Right. It wasn't, it, you're right, it wasn't a basement. Um, and then when we started doing video, which co- comes out a week later, YouTube channel, Ear Biscuits, if you're listening and you wanna start watching. And then we were like, man, it's, it's a little too dim. We gotta make it brighter because this is video. You, I mean, you kinda wanna see the people. But it was still dimmer than it needed to be. Because it was like, man, it's. We've increasingly made, but, made but it I'm less saying, dim. But I, I saw that post too, and I thought that it had a temporary, really dark, it was a dark time. We had a dark time. And that was just because something had been dialed in wrong. But then we fixed that and then we've slowly gotten it a little bit brighter. Did you add this, there's like a pull down projector screen just beyond this main camera here. Was that added just as a reflector or was that already there? Mm-hmm. It was added um, after. It was added? Yeah, we decided that we wanted it a lot, a little bit brighter. Okay. Yeah, it reflects. What'd you do, bring Ben in here to have ideas? You uh, just came up with this. It was kind of like a, team effort with me and Ben, yeah. Yeah, I know, it seemed like a Ben thing. So we got, it's a projector screen, but there's no projector anywhere. It's just, we're just using a projector screen as a bounce. We that could, is gratuitous. We could project something. That is the, you know, that we are we are high rolling. We got a projector screen with no projector, just for the bounce. <laughs> That's how high we're rolling. 
No, that's how see, large we're living. We let's put a projector right in between us. Let's right. replace so the while we're doing the sign with a large projector. Yeah. So while we're doing the podcast, we can be watching a movie. I want to watch The Mandalorian again. I know by the time this comes out, like most all, I don't know how many episodes there are, but like, so I know it's a little late, but I just have to gush a little bit. I'm, I'm still trying to get you to watch it. Oh, I'm gonna watch it, but uh, what about what we're gonna talk about today? Oh yeah. Which is not The Mandalorian. This week at the Round Table of Dim Lighting, we're talking about our book. Yeah. Um, we're gonna go into specific story points uh, based on your questions, comments, desires. The Lost Causes of Bleak Creek has a lot of details and a lot of, some controversy it appears. And this is going to be uh, full of spoilers, so might I suggest, uh, and this will be after the break that we get into this, so if you if you end up, if you haven't read the book yet, before we get into these questions, just stop this podcast and go pick it up. Or, I'll or say, listen to it on Audible. You, you listen to this podcast and you haven't read our book, well you can listen to the audio version of the book and it's kinda like a good replacement for Ear Biscuits or you know, for a little bit. So go to go to Audible, well, it's get like, yourself, it's like 12, go to Amazon, get 12 the, or 13 get the audible, Ear Biscuits together. Get the Audible version of the book and listen to that thing. Um, and then come back and enjoy this discussion. Now, if you're the, if you're the kind of person who's like, I'm not reading the book. I don't care how many times you guys say it. I'm not a reader. We respect that. Yeah, I guess that's cool. Whatever. Um, I'd still push back a little bit on that and say, just read it. Just if you're going to read one book, read this book. Uh, and then if you still are like, I'm not a reader, and I'm not going to make my first book I ever read your book. <laughs> <laughs> then just keep listening. Then just listen. Just to listen this to us talk thing. about a it's book that be, you haven't read. It's not going to be that. I mean, we're going to get into a lot of a lot of things, but you know, it's not going to ruin it for you if you ever do go back on that and decide to read. I mean, it's it's. I, I'm just. I'm just. I'm gonna have a moment of gratitude here. I'm still so grateful that this that this novel has been created. That we made it. That we wrote it. That it's that it's done. That it's bound. And that it's sitting on shelves. Oh, speaking of sitting on shelves. Um, me, Lily, and I'm not Lily. Me, Christy, and Lando. Uh, we went to the mall, and we well, we were going to that to the Galleria, but really, what we were doing was we were going to Din Tai Fung, because mm -hmm. because it was just us with Lando, and we we're like, we got to eat at a special place. And our I, maybe our favorite restaurant as a family is Din Tai Fung. Um, they got these dumplings. Good gosh! You can look through a window, and they're like, they're like, they're like folding these dumplings at like a rapid speed. Something that would be like one of those satisfying manufacturing videos that I would watch on Reddit. It's just like people working like robots. They're just amazingly fast, and 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 they will be replaced with robots. Oh my gosh! And the dumplings are so good. Dumpling robots. I mean, the wait was two hours, but when I finally got in there, I got. What do you order from there? Because I ordered the um. I ordered the crab and pork dumplings. I don't know. I just ordered a little bit of everything. I, once you eat those, I, everything else is. I mean, crab and pork together. Yeah, those are the best ones. Soup dumplings. You like bite the edge, and the soup comes out, and then you dip it in the vinegar and the hot saucy stuff. I don't think I would enjoy eating those with you. <laughs> well, and listen, do you make noises put, like that? I put yeah. I yeah. put the first one in my mouth. I can only imagine you have a system. And it. 
you know, they're not the best things for you, especially when you eat as many as I eat. So I try not to go there, but like once a quarter. But when I go, I go hard. I put, I, the first one I put in my mouth, I was like, this thing is so good. I close my eyes, man. I'm sitting there in the restaurant and I've been transported to Shanghai. That's Shanghai for you. And I'm just like savoring it and that, boy, that's, that's one of my happy places. You know when you're like going through a surgery, you're like having a cyst removed or you're like. I appreciate your passion about dumplings. Like you need to go to a happy place, I'm, that's where I'm going. Once Crab again, and pork in my mouth. You're, you're really easily distracted today. Like you've gotten off on two tangents. Oh, the book. Yeah, you, yeah, the book. That's what we're talking so about. So we were waiting. So we go over to Barnes and Noble, and I'm like, "Oh, I, I bet you the Lost Causes of Bleak Creek is here." Chris is like, "Yeah, I, I saw it. I've been in here a, a few days ago, and it's it's on this shelf right there at the front, like at the table, like new fiction." Yeah, the table that you want to be on. I felt, you know, I I kind of I looked at it, but I didn't want to like sit there and like pick it up and like stare at it like I'd like a lost child in the mall. That Did you I think just about found. signing it? Christy was like, you should sign it. I was like, I don't, I don't wanna do that. Cause then you have to have this weird interaction with the with Mr. Noble or Mr. Barnes and be like, excuse me, sir, why are you writing in the books? It's like, well, like, you know, I'm one of the authors of this book. It's like, depending on where it's, um, where it's printed online, you might not see me as the author. You might only see Rhett McLaughlin because apparently there's not enough space to put two authors on stuff. Yeah, I didn't have anything but to I'm, do with that. But I am on the front of the book and if you, when you put the discounted sticker, you also put that over my name. <laughs> so it's a novel for number one New York Times bestselling authors, Rhett McLaughlin and. 20% off. 20% <laughs> off. Yeah. I just get the short end of the stick, man. Well, your name's shorter. With the second book, I want, my name needs to be first. Okay. Is that a deal? You um, just said okay. Um, the, to, TBD. <laughs> <laughs> we, need to fi- we need to figure that out. So I was a little self-conscious and then we kind of walked away. I was like, I know what the book like, looks like, I'm not gonna buy it. And th- you know, there's escalators in there and I just noticed when I went up the escalator that I was like, I was turning back and looking down and looking at my book. I just couldn't believe it. We had a, we have a novel in Barnes and Noble. Well, I went to the uh, other places to the uh, Romans. I guess is how you pronounce that. Yeah, in Pasadena, and uh, which is th- that? That's my go-to. I like that. It's independent bookstore, and they got a lot of st- cool stuff. It's right next to the uh, Lamley, which incidentally subtitled movies. I saw no. I saw Jojo Rabbit there. Oh. Man. Why didn't you invite me? I just just took Shepard, just me and Shepard. What's it rated? It's PG thirteen. Okay, uh, he's thirteen. He's eleven, but uh, I was with him. <laughs> I, I guided him <laughs> <Yeah>. through it. <laughs> uh, boy, speaking of tangents, is it good? I gotta see it. Uh, I mean, Taika Waititi was also in the Mandalorian. It's uh, he's a freaking droid. It's so good. It's so good. But I'm not talking about that. I don't want to get off on a tangent. Uh, Isn't he great though? And he's great in that too. I'd like to meet him. He's even great as Hitler. <laughs> I mean, it's just like when when someone can make Hitler likable. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm not. Spoiler no, alert! No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give away anything because he doesn't really make Hitler likable. Um, if you understand what Hitler represents in that movie. Okay. Anyway, so uh, 
So I, I was long. I was longingly looking at the book as I was going up to well, the second and third floor. But I didn't want my. I didn't want Chrissy to see me looking at it. I thought she was like, "You're looking down there at your book, aren't you?" I was like, "Well, yeah, it's my book. It's down." I mean, how often do you get to look in a bookstore and see your own book? It's pretty. It's thrilling, man. But I, well, I went. To, I was in Romans, and I. I was like, well, of course I gotta find the book. And I was actually thinking I might sign it because the last time I was in Romans, uh, one of the employees came up to me and was like, Brett, uh, would you mind signing some copies of the Book of Mythicality because they had that out in the like internet humor section or something oh, like yeah. that. Oh yeah. And uh, with all the other YouTuber books. But I was more excited about this because I was like, oh, our book's gonna be in the fiction section and like the part of the bookstore that everybody goes, not the internet humor that like only if you're lost on your way to the bathroom do you find it. Right, um, that'd be good for the toilet. And so it's not quite as well organized and set up as a Barnes and Noble uh, in that there's also like five entrances to the, this bookstore and you don't know what, what's the front, there's multiple cashiers. And I love that because it makes it easy to steal their books. <laughs> you know, they got they got to spread out their security. Right, yeah. I'm rolling out of, of there with, of with books like, you know, Dune's a thick book. But yeah. when you got multiple exits, you just you just you just bide your time and you, you, you're taking that Dune down your pants. That guy's got a lot of junk in his trunk shaped like a book. Um, I have not, and I do not advocate stealing books. But you can put it down your pants. Just pull it back out and purchase it. Um, so I go to the fiction section, and they have new and noteworthy. That's what they call it, I think. And there it was. Well, being as ours was table. new, does that mean it wasn't noteworthy? Well, no, it was on. It's new and noteworthy. It was both, not either or. And uh, but then they had the bestsellers section which is like a nice shelf with like a really nice light on it. Yeah. We weren't on that, uh, which I was like. What, but that was before we were technically a bestseller. No, this was yesterday. Oh, they, they didn't get the memo? Um, so I almost, well, a couple of things. I almost offered to sign one <laughs> or two. But then you There were only two left. You oh, only two, you decided not to. And then I was almost like, well, how can we uh, put it on the bestseller? It is a bestseller, but you know. So you went. You thought about going into negotiations. You're like, um, excuse me, I'd be more than happy to sign my novel if you'd be more than happy to put it under the lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can you move, move just, these last two. You could just move them over. A lot, but that is, that's a cool thing. A lot of people have been reporting that they've been going to various bookstores and they're out. They've sold out um, of a number of these. So. Um, they're, and they're there's printing, more on the way. They they're, just, there's they're a printing second printing new, already, yeah. And the new printing's gonna say New York Times bestseller, bestseller, something like that, right? Oh, I didn't. That will be printed on it. It's not gonna be a sticker, but it will be over my name. <laughs> you were taking Link's they're name taking off. taking my name off of the just, book. And it's gonna say, New York Times bestseller. It's gonna say, a novel from number one New York Times bestselling authors, Rhett McLaughlin, and this is also a New York Times bestselling book. That's what it's gonna say. Yeah, sorry, Link. But no, you know I, what? You I, they you're in the they back. sent us the mock up, but I didn't open it. You're in the picture in the back, and you're standing in front of me. So that, that I think that makes up for it. I love the fact that you you knew that before you looked at it. Like you know that I'm standing in front of you in that picture. Well, no, I well I knew Did that you? I knew that when we chose this picture because you didn't. You, you're so much no, bigger than me. No, I think it, you always stand a little bit in front of me because I'm taller, but this is like, 
your elbow is all the way across my belly button. That's a, in, in my opinion, that's just a little too far in front. <laughs> my face is way bigger, bigger, bigger than your face. It's because like not only, I think that it's the the, the the wide angle lens that they're using to take this picture with. So typically we'd be the same size, but my head looks really, really small and really far away. So it all evens out is what I'm getting at. Uh, um, I don't you, know if that evens out. You wanna answer? Oh, and another thing I thought is it's a really cool cover, but people are putting like really bright colors on covers now, kind of playing like the YouTube thumbnail game yeah. with book covers. Do we lose? And I was like, I don't know how much I would just, it's a really cool cover, but I don't know how eye-catching it is when you just put it next to like 20 other books. Yeah, it doesn't have the, it, 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 the letters should have been neon pink. Yeah, so maybe the next, uh, maybe the next printing, well, we should call them right now and go all neon. We're say no explanation, it's all neon this time. Yeah. Gotta get those clicks. Ear Biscuits is supported by apartments.com. And if you're looking for an apartment, you know, there's. you should get in touch with what it is that you can get most excited about. Maybe that's an apartment with a balcony mm. or windows that face a sunset. Oh. I mean, if you're really gonna get into thinking about it because you are gonna live there. Hardwood floors in the kitchen, maybe. Mm. Well, apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all your specific unique boxes. They have powerful tools like amenity filters to make sure your possible future home has all the amenities you need like in-unit washer dryer, air conditioning, dishwasher, balcony. Oh, did you say balcony? Did you say elevator? Some oh. people love a good elevator. Or save searches. You can favor the listings that stood out to you so that you can revisit them and won't lose what could be an amazing future home. I, I like the idea of like one of those things that's usually on top of a barn that says what direction the wind's blowing. Oh, a wind uh, thing, thing. With a rooster. Yeah. Yeah. That. Visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. Ear Biscuits is supported by Mountain Dew. We all get bogged down with the mundane tasks of life, especially this time of year. But isn't it time you take a break from your normal boring routine? Don't just sit on the sidelines and watch life go by. Get in the game with the bold tropical lime flavor of Mountain Dew Baja Blast. You can be having a blast anywhere. Having a blast at work. Having a blast in traffic. Okay. Having a blast while you file your taxes. What? No, really, we mean it when we say anywhere. With Baja Blast now in stores everywhere where you can be having a blast whenever and wherever you are all year long. So what are you waiting for? Pick up an ice cold Baja Blast today at a store near you and for a limited time with every purchase of Baja Blast in stores and at participating Taco Bell locations, you can collect coins for a chance to get Baja gear or a Taco Bell deal. This swag is available for a limited time only, so do not wait. Grab a Baja Blast and start having a blast right away. No purchase necessary. Open to US residents 18 and over, subject to official rules at BajaBlast.com. Ends June 15th, 2024, void where prohibited. Okay, we're gonna answer some questions about the book. This is a good time for you to uh, pause the, the podcast and go buy the book and read it. Bleakcreek.com. So we have questions from loyal listeners and avid readers, uh, a lot, and a lot of discussions happening on the Mythical Society Discord um, as well. So I think that's gonna, we, we've read all of that, so I think that's going to f color some of our answers. And I think that, I know we should wait for the Ruby questions until the end. So let's just 
Let's save those, but start anywhere you want to start. Uh, let's start with a question from Mythical Cop Wife. Okay. We've met her a number of times. That's why we're in her profile picture. <laughs> uh, very engaged member of the uh, mythical community, society, etc. I would love to know more on Whitewood's backstory on transforming from a seemingly normal person to the headmaster slash cult leader he became. What made him decide to go the route of forming a reform school? Was there no other way to get his ruby back? Now this is a, I, I think that uh, this question represents or is related to a conversation that I have seen quite a lot of people having, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the fact that our antagonist is revealed to have some humanity uh, and almost might elicit some of your sympathy uh, is something that pe people have kind of struggled with. They struggle with sort of wrapping their minds around what am I supposed to think about this guy? Mm -hmm. Are you guys trying to justify his actions by saying, by giving, you know, explaining that the motivation is, is him doing whatever he can for his daughter? And some people are like, obviously, I don't care what your motivation was, your actions have hurt so many more people that, that I think our, I'll just say first thing, our intention in doing that was unlike, uh, what was the bad dude in Captain Planet? Um, I never watched Captain Planet. It was the guy who polluted for, and it seemed like the reason that the guy who polluted, it was the evil dude in Captain Planet, it just seems like he just got a kick out of just polluting the earth. Oh, look. I'm getting a message. Your hair is messed up. My, look at that, you talking about that? It's bothering you, thank you. Jenna's bothered because my hair was messed up after the hoodie. Yeah, I was gonna let it ride. You weren't gonna say anything? Actually, I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell from my angle. Um, but he was he polluted and as a kid watching that, I was just like, this guy's just evil for the sake of being evil. Like I didn't even make any connection to, and I don't know if the show did make a connection to, no, oh no, this guy's committed to industry and therefore his pollution is just a byproduct. It mm -hmm. seems like he just was a bad dude who wanted to pollute the planet. But I think in reality, everyone who does something that is wrong, for the most part, has their own internal morality that is telling them that what they're doing is justified, right? Most people make the decisions and they rationalize them and we just kinda wanted something that you take this person and you've got all this hate built up for them and then you see that, oh, actually, he has reasons that doesn't excuse his actions but the world's a messy place Yeah, but it's, and people and are complicated. It's not justification, you know, but it's, it's explanation. I mean, it's like, D didn't, didn't you wanna know? It's like, why, why is this guy doing this? Why, you know, he's, he's constructed, I mean, and I guess that's the question, like wh why make a school? Why, why have a reform school and? Well, that's because that's what he knows. He was a, he was a principal in his former life. So he's, he has run a school before. And there was an opportunity because with the way that Bleak Creek worked that it, there was a there was a need for someone to step in and say I can solve one of your biggest problems which is you know I can I can make you I can address your one of your biggest fears which is what's going to happen to our children are they going to stay 
You know, are they gonna stay on the straight and narrow or are they gonna, are they gonna go wayward? You know, a, as a parent, you, there are just times when you're struck with, oh my gosh, what, how are, how are, how are my children gonna turn out? And am I doing enough, you know? Am I doing enough to, to help them become contributing members of society, like people who follow their heart, that are kind, you know, you want, but I mean, if you oversimplify that, or if at, at times as a parent, you just get to like, I just want them to act right. Like, if I could just do that, then maybe everything else will fall into place because if they start acting wrong, then that's a red flag that like something's really going wrong deeper, you know, that I'm really screwing up as a parent. And so I think he was smart enough to see that like that fear goes very deep in a, in a parent. So if I, can, if I can tap into that and present the solution for a, for a kid that they're just like throwing their hands up, I don't know what to do with this kid, you know? She's, she's pulling the pants off of mannequins. Yeah. She's embarrassing me, she's, she's you know, they're, they're interrupting prayers at the at the at the pig picking. Then that's there's a, it, it's a nice simple solution. And hey, the the kids don't even have to live with me anymore. <laughs> well, I think there's I, I think there's three there's three contributing factors, right? It, that kind of the first thing was uh, the keeper specifically asked for kids who have kind of gone their own way, right? Kids who. Um, weren't falling in line. So you gotta find those kids, right? Right, that's his problem. And so, right? so if okay, okay. And then the second thing is, is that he's got experience with school administration. And then the third thing is, is kind of what you're getting at, which is early 90s, North Carolina, really America in general, we're still in the midst of moral panic that really started, that really kind of hit its peak in the 80s when mm -hmm. parents started really worrying about Satanism. I mean, I'm, I we remember very, very clearly, like uh, there was a whole lot of moral panic around people actually worshiping Satan. Like, like we actually were told that no, yeah. you guys, people are worshiping Satan. Never mind the fact that the whole Church of Satan was started as almost a mockery of the idea of religion in general. I remember thinking, I remember thinking as a kid, I was like, so you're telling me that there are people who worship Satan, which means that they believe in the framework that there's a God and there's a Satan and they're choosing the bad guy. Yeah. Like this is illogical on so many different levels. And, and I would Cause you're buying into the worldview that includes Satan and then choosing him. I think, but I. That's just, that. I'm not saying that no one, no one does that, but, we but knew it's not it, a societal problem we knew and it enough, never was. We knew enough bad kids to be like, oh, that's a bad kid. I think he, I bet, I bet he would like to worship Satan. <laughs> well, and then, he he's not saying that he does, but. And then we were told that if you, if you played all, all, the, all this rock music backwards, backmasking, like we would literally go. Backmasking. Masking, yeah. We would literally go to these presentations where these guys would get up and they would play Led Zeppelin and ACDC and the other bands backwards and show all the satanic messages. Whose power is Satan? Um, that, that's what uh, Robert Plant sang in reverse on a song. Right. Yeah, I, and I remember that being a film from the 70s. It seemed like a 70s-ish film that was then screened again in the early, early 90s for, for us, us at, 
at Campbell University. Bro, it's a we little went bit behind. That. Well, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was they, were, they were still trying to eradicate the, Led Zeppelin was still popular. But I think this is, what I'm pointing at is in, in line with what you were saying before, which is what an effective way to manipulate people and manipulate their behavior is to understand what their greatest fears are. Right. And then you can basically just begin selling them any kind of bullshit you want to. Within, especially it, within the, if it works within the framework of what they already believe. Exactly, so I'm saying is if you tell people that rock music is actually a subversive way to worship Satan and that's consistent with the fears that they already have about it, then then you can get them to believe things like people are intentionally putting satanic messages into their song because they legitimately worship Satan. If anyone actually ever did that, it was because they were playing into it in a, in a tongue-in-cheek way. But anyway, so, so Whitewood is, in a community where this is the way every, this is the way people think, and he's like, "This is what my experience is, and this these are the kids that I need in order to accomplish my mission." So you put all you do that mathematical equation, and you kind of come up with a really strict reform school that the kids have to live at. So you got to have control, right? Uh, and then of course you've eventually got to get some other adults to help you out, and you've got to manipulate the, them as well. And the way you do that is twofold. One, you you play a mean organ at the church. I mean. Trustworthy. It, it's hard to argue with that. He's there every Sunday playing that organ, you know? That, that means a lot. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he, he might have made a run at, a, at being a pastor, but like that takes a lot more time. Yeah. Uh, and then the second thing is you master that pit barbecue and you win them over. Yeah. You win them over. Um, it, you, people can overlook a world of hurt. Literally, they overlooked like uh, deaths, and which, which is something that we wrestled with because it's like, man, once you have kids dying, are, is this town really? Is this town really going to just let this school just continue? Well, but that happens all the time. I mean, it is in my mind, it's not that big of a leap. People let injustice fester. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when the person who's in charge of it seems legitimate, right? And there seems to be a legitimate explanation. I'm just like, oh, okay, three kids over a decade have died in accidents at this place. It's just like, and and this is largely based on so the reform school in the book. We had we had the whole thing sketched out, but then we actually once we had outlined the entire book, we found out about this reform school. Yeah, Lance, Lance found this article in somewhere in the Northeast that uh, even up until within the last decade had operated and they had found that they were doing all kinds of crazy disciplinary things on the kids, including rolling them up in a carpet. Yep. Uh, because because we had written, let's see, we I'm trying to figure out if we knew or if we changed it, but we there, no, there was a we, box. Yeah, well. We had not we had not decided what the what the specific uh, disciplinary thing was, but we knew we wanted it to be something where kids were isolated, and we wanted it to seem kind of like the the carpet thing. So yeah, we, the first draft right. was the it was the box, and it was a wooden box that was about two and a half feet on a, each side, and you basically sort of ball a kid up, and you'd put them in this dark box that had some breathing holes. And then the guy would come in and kind of kick it around, and you would end up upside down, and you couldn't get turned. It's too small to turn around inside. But I just thought that there's just nothing. It just wasn't as memorable or as visceral as the as the role. 
So, but the car, so the carpet roll is a real thing they did to kids. And these kids, as a, at a certain, once they reached adulthood, if I remember correctly, a lot of them were um, troubled. They had residual effects, and there was a, there was a you lot think? of suicide. Yeah, a lot of them were dying, and then there was an uh, there was an investigation, like through Facebook, of like whatever happened to a classmates, and then like a, turns out a lot of them had committed suicide. Yeah, I don't remember as that. a long term result. I don't remember that detail, but there I, there was a lot of bad stuff going on at the time, and people didn't re, it raised an eyebrow, but, but it didn't cause any action. Yeah, so it's it's sad that these things do happen. Uh, a related question: uh, Shell, the Velvet Hook, who's changed the moniker to include Scooter Leg. Yeah. That's an homage. Appreciate that. Uh, you mentioned in, you mentioned the seven-pointed star being significant. In Christianity, the seven-pointed star represents the seven gifts of the spirit. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear, and delight. Um, that's not, those aren't the gifts of the spirit that I know. Yeah, that must be. Uh, this is a different list. Must be NIV. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, it must be the message. Yeah, it must be. So that's some biblical translation humor for you. So I wondered if this was a metaphor for the seven lost causes in some way. A- absolutely, the seven-pointed star is a metaphor for the lost causes that um, that the cult needs to get into the spring. Well, and let me pair this with this next question too from Fanto Moose who asks, can you elaborate on the Latin used by the cult? First one seems to be Vita est aqua, life is water, but couldn't completely figure out the second one. Electus intrat aquam sanctum, selected in holy water. Um, yeah, so all the stuff that is true about the cult, like the robes, the seven pointed star, the Latin chants that are happening, just to kind of put you, put you, get your mind in the right place, all of this is false. Was fabricated by Whitewood as a manipulative scheme to give the appearances and trappings of a cult or some sort of religious organization that these people would buy into. So it isn't like the these keeper, things the have. Keeper didn't tran- the keeper didn't transfer th- this knowledge and this symbology to Whitewood. The key, the, we know, you know what the keeper wants. He wants, he wants seven lost causes. He wants, he wants kids of a certain age with a certain um, oomph to them. Um, because there's his fuel is associated with that, right? But everything else is Whitewood's problem, right? And the seven pointed star, yes, it was chosen because the keeper told him, "You got to get seven kids." Uh, and while the seven pointed star does have significance in Christianity, it's all it also like most symbols, it has significance in other places, including pagan religion. And we just took it and turned it upside down so that the the predominant arrow. Well, let's say Whitewood turned it upside down. Uh, was pointing down towards the earth, towards water. Also the triangle in general in paganism is a symbol of water, because it's pointing down. It's also a symbol of feminism because of the triangle. Um, What's that got to do with this? <laughs> I'm just letting you know. I'm not, it wasn't a joke, I'm just letting you know. Uh, now the the Latin specifically, so again, my thought process behind this was, so when we were writing the section about the cult, I was like, okay, well what, what could they chant? And I was like, all right, well, 
what if there was something that was like life is water or water is life and then once they get down there and they're selecting the specific person to go into the, put their hand into the water, it'll be the selected one or the the chosen one enters the water. The chosen, and I can't remember whether or not the chosen one refers to the person chosen in sort of the weird duck duck goose game or if it's that Whitewood himself. But anyway, it was very simply putting the meaning into Google Translate and going from English to Latin until we got something that, oh, that kind of seems like it could be a cool chant. And so, and and also I was thinking at the time, we're probably gonna get a couple of things wrong, like maybe the tense is wrong, maybe this isn't a perfect translation, but let's not pay too much attention to it because we're trying to make it seem like this dude who has no experience in any of this stuff is like going to the library and kind of coming up with these this language that wouldn't be perfect. It, this system would not be this perfectly cohesive system that feels like it has some sort of supernatural force, but it's more like somebody creating something to fool people and it's gonna have some inconsistencies in it. So you're like, ah, he chose this and he, this is what you chant. So everything has significance, but it's not, it doesn't have like metaphysical significance, it's just. He made it up to make sense and to manipulate. You systemic. know, kinda like, you think I was gonna throw another religion or call <laughs> under, the, under the bus, <laughs> didn't you? So yeah, the, so the Latin and the symbology, this, the, the, the star, the freaking star is on the side of the book. Look at that, this white wood tainted the spine of our novel. They did. Because there's the star, that means nothing. That's a, de that's a, that's a deception, man. We got it right there on the, side of the, on the spine of the book, because it looks cool. But it means something now. It means the lost, it means, yeah, it means. Or else I what? shouldn't have got it tattooed on my left butt cheek. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he made all that stuff up, y'all. He made it all up. So then we go back to the fact it's like, why would a guy go through all this trouble? And so not to make, I mean, yeah, you can, I think you do feel for him, but it doesn't justify his actions. I mean, would you wanna do anything to save your daughter to, to like to, to remove your daughter's pain and to, you know, to, to give her a full life? Well, hopefully not anything, hopefully not this, you know? But I mean, it, it's not just the one decision. He's continually communing with his daughter who's frozen in time, you know, um, and Every time he goes down there, his heart is wrenched one more time. So it's like, at a certain point, he's kind of, again, I'm not trying to justify this, but you, psychologically, it's, it's you, you can go, you can go crazy trying to trying to care for somebody if you reach a total dead end, and especially if it's like this is the answer. If you just do this, you know, you can find yourself becoming convinced of or justif justifying your actions. Yeah, I mean, so. We wanted it to be a little bit messy and complicated, but ultimately, you're still. I mean, if I think if you if you're normal, you're still going to conclude that none of the stuff that he's doing is actually justified. It's just he has his own reasons, which may draw a little bit of sympathy from you, but not to the point that you think any 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 of it's justified. Just think. I mean, you got this poor girl who doesn't want to get out of her dress, getting in there. Oh my Lord, Wayne said, it was working. The water all around them began to bubble. Wayne began to laugh, unconcerned about disturbing anyone who might be within earshot. Ruby laughed too. This is really fun. She pushed off the bottom, beginning to swim. 
Wayne was careful not to let go of her hand. That didn't matter though. As soon as she dropped her face below the surface, Ruby was violently sucked down into the water. Her hand slipped from her father's. Ruby, he yelled, baby. Then he got spit out. Moving along, I mean, this is a question related to, related, a quick one related to the to the spring. Uh, Joel McRae asks, are the seven souls taken by the keeper dead? Um, what happened to them? Do they go to an afterlife or just not exist? Um, so no, the, the, the seven souls that are in there are in the same situation that Rex, I mean that Leaf and Alicia were Mm-hmm. Uh, in this book, so in this state of stasis, which your body is not aging, um, you, there's some things happening in your mind. Of course, the longer that you're there, it seems like the less you can kind of remember and hold on to that the life that you had before. And interestingly, um, this. I don't want to. I don't want to get into too much of this because I don't. I don't like taking any taking so much of the mystery, any of the, any of the mystery out. But I will say that the uh, the nature of the spring and the keeper of the spring, and even the the nature of this the void and the people sort of being suspended in time and kind of trapped in this place. I'll, every element of that is at least somewhat influenced by sort of like Celtic mythology. Right, and that's why in the book they break out the giant book that talks about I can't remember the name of the book, but uh, that's when they get some information about the nature of the spring and the blood and all this stuff, and the blood being the key. That's because now that that particular some of some of the particular choices that we made are just things that we came up with, but the general idea of like there being this sort of uh, being in charge of a of a spring that represents almost a portal to a slightly different plane of existence. These are concepts that come up time and time again in Celtic mythology, uh, which in a second we'll, it's, when we get to the end, we'll talk about what does this mean about a potential second book and where else could, could could this go. Um, but I will say that all of that is, it's not completely fabricated we didn't just invent it out of thin air. We kind of looked and did some research on the way people thought about that in sort of ancient Celtic times and uh, used that to influence us. So no, the, long story short, or long answer short, those people are not dead. They're still in the void. Um, you mentioned when we were talking about Whitewood, you said like he would come up with the symbology and the Latin and stuff like, if he like went to the library and was doing research, which reminds me of this question. Uh, Jade underscore IEMRG is the man who told Janine in the library basement about the deaths at Whitewood School going to be talked about at all? He disappeared and I have a feeling his character has a story to be told. Yeah, um, we're working on a spinoff novel series about library dude, creepy library dude. Yep. Well, first of all, you, you ever go to the library? There's always somebody who like, you can, you can tell they spent a lot of time at the library. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, maybe Whitewood went there. Janine definitely went there for answers and uh, this guy apparently knew what she was looking for 
and had a little information, but then either he was ghost or he just ghosted. I mean, he wanted to help, but do you have a straightforward answer? Because I, I, have, a, I have a roundabout answer. Who is this guy? Well, go ahead. Uh, I just think that in, in this town, you, you can't expect everyone to believe exactly the same thing for there not to be anybody who's m- more suspicious. So it's, uh, to me, it, it, it rang true that there was, there's at least somebody that you, that you encounter in this story that's like, it's just not taking this hook, line, and sinker. Somebody who's but, a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. But, but every once in a while conspiracy theorists are right. And then, but then not accepted. Kind of like, a, you know, we, look, we say conspiracy theorists with derision. And I'm sure in the town, you know, any, any naysayer would, would be, you know, who knows what they'd be saying on, scratching on the side of his car. You know, so it's like, hey, I'm gonna help you out a little bit, but I don't wanna be associated with this. It's like the the simple explanation. Well, and like I, who is he, I and would, how well, much does he really know? And I would say an even simpler ex- explanation that doesn't even it is is very it's it's very much all right. She needs to do some kind of research, and she needs to, again. This is one of those things that in storytelling, it's like okay, well, Janine needs to learn something that the audience needs to also know in order to move this story forward. Where would you get this type of information? Well, you would get it at a library. What kind of town is Bleak Creek? And also, what kind of story are we trying to tell? Okay, so I think that the library scene is actually pretty indicative of exactly the way we wanted to write this book. So the first thing that happens is, okay, something ironically funny. Yeah. There's a loud librarian. It's a simple, simple joke that we gotta, a good bit of mileage out of, right? Right. And then, oh, but this is also a scary, scary thing. So she's gonna go down into this basement. It's gonna get a little bit weird when she says that she's asking about the Whitewood School. And what better way to introduce a little bit of, I mean, she obviously passes this guy who's kind of following her with his eyes as she goes down uh, and walks through the main part of the library to then go, go to the basement. And then what if all of a sudden he's just right behind her not necessarily because there is significance to this guy that will be explored later, but most mostly because it's just really creepy. Well, and because so you it's, know, it's a more know, inventive way to you get know this information that she's out. being watched. You know that she's you know she's being. There's a lot. There's a increasing attention on Janine's efforts, and so like, how far is this going to go? You know, is she in, is she going to be harmed? And so right, yeah. You, hopefully you're thinking that as you're reading this that like, I mean she's got it. She's lying about the recipes and that's kind of it's not going too great. <laughs> you know, it's like she, she kind of. I really enjoy her lies, and um, but I was you know, I'm hoping that the reader's like, okay, I just don't know if that lie is good enough. I think she might she might be putting a target on her back, yeah. or like I said, on her car at least. Yeah, well, and you know. So then what's this guy gonna do? Well, and the funny thing is, is you is you know, I mean, it's obvious by the way we ended the book, which somebody pointed out in a question, um, that we want the, the, this story to continue. Yeah, the the book ends with, um, you should, okay, Ruby's out, and this is not quite reconciled. I mean, no justice has been done to what these adults have been doing, and 
what's going on in the spring and there's still people that we love and care about who are stuck there. Uh, is, you know, is Alicia gonna get back to normal? There's a lot of open questions and that was very, very intentional. And I think that one of the interesting things that we're finding is when you ask this question about this man, well, I just told you, no, there was no greater significance to this guy. He represents an opportunity to make the the scene scary and he's also indicative of just the nature of the town and like Link said, that there's gonna be people who are skeptical about this school. But the cool thing about potentially writing a second book is if we wanted there to be significance to that guy and we wanted to make it almost retroactive, as long as you don't do anything that is contradictory to the way that you set it up in the first book, you have the right to do that. Well, I, and I, it's not that we didn't, I do think it's imp, it, it was important with that guy that like, it does also send the message that there are potential allies in this town. Everybody's not against these kids. It's not just, and, and Janine, you know? Uh, so yeah, I, there's a little you're bit. You're not wrong. I'm just saying. I'm just that, saying there's a little. But there, I'm just saying that's not the process that. But there's that potential went, there. that went into it. It's not the process that it went into it. But it, I, we, I, we 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 talked about the. I, I, I'm we haven't talked about it on the show. But it but it there's an openness to it. That's well, the point I'm making. You know what? And this this leads to another question. Uh, Tell about the question about the uh, Dennis. Dennis, yes. Read, read uh, that Jula, question. Julia, which is. Jula483 asked, was Dennis calling Janine who was still in Bleak Creek just a weird coincidence or was there something supernatural happening there? Him calling her all of a sudden when she was in doubt and not sure if she should stay or leave was almost too perfect. And a related question from Griffiest, that, and she actually replied, he or she actually replied to this question, that or I was even thinking at the time that he might have been paid off or encouraged by someone uh, or some or one of the cult members to get her to leave town. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish I had a really awesome answer to this, but the answer is no, nah, it would just was, it was just the best way to tell the story. It was dramatic point. timing. If it was a little too perfect, well, yeah, yeah, it might have been a little too perfect, but sometimes you need your characters to do something that will do the perfect thing for your story. Hey, think, you know, things happen serendipitously in, in real life too. Yeah, they do all the time. Uh, but, which. You wanna, you wanna avoid the cumulative effect of a lot of that happening and driving it, the yeah, story yeah, yeah. forward, I don't so think it's it, like. We, we didn't make it, there's not a whole lot of super convenient things that happen, but there are some convenient things that happen so you don't have to sit through an unnecessary chapter to move the story forward. And also, it's our first novel, I'm sure. It, oh, don't, it, don't, listen, don't apologize. Well, but I'll also say that. Don't I, make excuses. I read, um, I read like well-established writers all the time and I see things that I'm like, whoa, that, that's, that right there is so convenient that it's just, and I, and I tend to not be very judgmental about that kind of thing, but I find some things get too convenient sometimes. I don't think this is necessarily one of them, but I think it relates to the, to the question that we were answering before, which is kind of the way that intentions and symbolism, in fact, I was, uh, um, I was in a classroom last week. Uh, Lot was doing this tour of this place and there's a, uh, uh, in the writing in the writing classroom, the English classroom, there there was a uh, a, 
I'm gonna get this wrong, but the quote was, I don't know whether the author intended what my teacher says they intended or if she's just making it up. <laughs> but it was a very funny way to kind of word yeah. that. And I think that, and I th we're just glad to be a part of the discussion. I don't know if it, I think it may have been Hank Green talking about his book, but somebody had seen something in his book and he was like, oh, um, I'd like to take credit for that, but no, I'm glad, and I'm, I'm glad that you, you see that that way. But right. I think it goes back to the process of like, once you put yourself in a certain frame of mind and you're in a certain setting and you're telling a certain story, there are going to be things that, like even the observation that you made about the nature of the friendship in the way that they held hands around the tree, the observation that you made in yeah. the documentary, which uh, wasn't, the reason we put it in the book is because, well that was what we remembered. We remembered three people holding hands around a tree and not being able to reach, and then you made the connection that this is like, well, if two people are holding hands, the other two people can't be holding hands, and so it sort of represents the inherent tension in a three-way relationship, you know? Um, it's not that that's not true, it's just that that wasn't intended. People can find the meaning in that, and I think, that, and I think that's totally fine to find the meaning in something, but that doesn't mean that all of that was there. It's just when you're when you're in a, you're in a certain frame of mind when you're writing, and then the person's in a certain frame of mind when they're reading. There's going to be connections made, and I, for me, that's just a beautiful part of the reading process. Is that finding those things and attaching meaning, e even in places that it could have been subconsciously inserted by a writer. It doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be intentional. I think that was the case there because we were very much talking about the, the relational dynamics and like Leaf trying to confess his crush and that being thwarted. You know, it's like, and then that's the very next thing that we talk about. You know, it's an easy connection. Let, let's move to the. Well, uh, but the, to, to, to keeping <clears throat> in the same theme, this, this question from Nicole Tennant. Uh, Sunday Rain 26, is there any significance to the blue frog? So Ruby's blue frog left on the bed. And yes, there is very specific significance to it. I don't know exactly where it could go, but the reason that it's a blue frog is of course the blue sort of represents the theme of water that we're dealing with and that's why the robes are blue in the, the cult. But the frog is of course amphibious, which represents the ability to go between two different worlds, two different modes of existence. A frog being able to go into water and, and then on land. And, and who does that? And also, the frog itself uh, is, does have, once you start kind of searching like spiritual or symbol, you know, symbology of frog or something like that, you'll be taken to like 12 different websites and they all kind of have a different interpretation. But I did find one website that talked about the there's a sort of a spiritual analog to the amphibious nature of a frog being that it represents the ability to kind of go between two planes of existence both you know the physical world and the spiritual world and i think that the void does represent some sort of metaphysical spiritual plane of existence that isn't necessarily the other world or underworld but it's something different and so that is the significance of the frog 
What where we're gonna go with that, we don't know exactly, but yes, there's a reason that it was a frog and that wasn't accidental. And if you remove the R in frog, you get what? Mm, fog. fog. And fog is something that lingers over what? A bog. Water. Um, okay, Austin Reed, Reaper Crew 96. Can we talk about the very last scene when Alicia's going down the street and sees Ruby in the epilogue? Is that a hint at a second book? When Ruby got out of the spring, is she still a little kid or has she grown up the 10 years? Um, hashtag ear biscuits. She has not grown up um, the 10 years. She is, she's, she's the same age she was when she went in. She's seven years old. She's seven years old. Um, so yeah, let's talk about let's talk about that scene. Is it a hint at a second book? Wouldn't I like to know? I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was our a second book that doesn't exist yet. It was our yeah. it was our big hint at the fact that we want to write a second book. It's not necessarily up to us whether or not there will be a second book, uh, but it was it represented our intention that there will be. But it would be cool to have like Ruby in a second book. Oh yeah. Or maybe we just forget about her. It's like, you know what, that's that's just a dangling participle. Let's move on to right. something else. Let's forget about Ruby. She's not gonna be in the second book. Was there, was there another question? I think, um, I thought there was another Ruby question, but you know. Yeah, there is. Um, from Lex, why was Ruby the most attached to the keeper when she wasn't the first kid to drown in the spring? Because uh, you know, there's Timothy who who is in there. Who's the kid who um, I can't remember how many years ago it would have been, but basically when the spring shut down was when he drowned, according to the people, according to his parents, according to the people in the town, the bleak family that was running the resort. He drowned, but we know that no, he didn't drown. He's been in there. So okay, so why is it that the keeper is sort of speaking through and obviously more attached to Ruby? Again. The well, his question was, why is it Ruby so attached to the keeper? I guess it, it, it's the same question. Most attached ways, to the keeper. Well, again, the, I think the answer is the most straightforward and that is um, the keeper wants more children, right? The keeper's made that very clear. Uh, apparently, he didn't have any, uh, he didn't have, Timothy being down there wasn't doing anything for him, but Ruby, because of the way that it ended up working out where both Ruby and Whitewood went down at the same time. Uh, now the, the keeper's an opportunist, right? So the keeper knows that now I've got the carrot, Ruby, in the spring that I, and now I can manipulate uh, Whitewood and get him to do my bidding. And so he's naturally going to be more attached to Ruby because she is the way that he can accomplish his purposes unlike Timothy, which apparently hasn't worked out so well. Right, so let, I mean, let's, let's shift to more of a summary of like, okay, so where does this leave us? I mean, rest assured we've given, we've given a lot of thought to where, where, we're, where we're leaving the reader and uh, yeah, we've given a lot of thought to where we wanna take uh, you in a, in, a, in a follow-up, which, um, you know, we're not saying that's definitely happening because we don't know that that's definitely happening at this point, but we certainly hope that that we'll have the opportunity to write a second book. So 
honestly, the more buzz that continues to be generated and, uh, around this book, the more the greater the chances that 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 we get a, the opportunity to write this second book, which we're we've already been working on. So, <laughs> yeah, we know where we want to go in the second book. Again, it's just a question of will we have the privilege to do so. Um, okay, so in summary, kind of where we left, we, where we leave off in book one, and this is if you if you for some reason have decided to listen to this podcast up until this point, and now you're thinking you want to read it, you or really listen to it. Need to pause the podcast. This is not yeah, because no. I'm going to like summarize where it ends. So just don't listen to this, please. Don't listen to this. There are a number of people who are inside the void. Ben, because he was taken by the wave at the end. Uh, Josephina, the girl who befriended Alicia inside Whitewood. Josephina really liked that frog. I will say that. You know, when I was, I was like Josephina, and this is me, but like just putting myself in the mind of the reader. Why you keep, why you keep touching that frog and like, like messing up Ruby's room so much? So maybe, that made me uncomfortable. Good. The fact that they were getting too comfortable in that room and then Whitewood snatched them up. Um, the two kids who were thrown in during uh, the commotion at the end of the book. So there was a crazy moments where they were getting Leaf and Alicia out but there were other kids being thrown in and rejected. Well, Patrick Small and April Lee are two kids that have, uh, they're mentioned as missing at the end of the at the book by the sheriff. They are lost. They are in the void. Because they are lost causes. There are three former Whitewood students uh, who've been there for years since their supposed deaths. That's Richard Stanley in 1982, a 16-year-old girl unnamed. She the, she's the one that. There's uh, the fire and then there's the. Richard um, Stanley was the one in the oven. Yeah, the And oven. the 16-year-old girl was the one that was smoking next to the uh, gas leak, or supposedly. That was stupid. And then there's the boy that was struck by lightning in 1989 who's also unnamed. That really happened. And then there's Timothy Bleak, uh, who's the first kid to ever be uh, taken into the spring, at least you know, in the span of our story. Maybe, it ha- maybe things happened before, I don't know. Um, he's been there since 1961 when he drowned, in quotes and that shut down the original Bleak Creek Resort. Now you might do the math on that and realize that that's more than seven kids. That's eight kids and again, um, or is that, no, that's, no. no. So if you, can, if you count nine. Ruby, that's nine. If you yeah. count Ruby, that's nine. Um, so again, the again the seven. The seven kids was just a number, the seven additional kids given to Whitewood for, again, I don't try to put too much logic behind why the keeper needs a certain number. But if he's saying seven, then he, his, real number, is his real number was nine. Yeah, and you could get into some numerology there if you want in the significance of seven and the significance of nine. If you wanna read about that a little bit, I'm not gonna say that that isn't at least. Go to the library. It, it, it works out nicely. See who comes up to you. Uh, oh, the library guy, don't forget him. Now, the sheriff, Sheriff Lawson and the rest of the cult, Mary Hathaway, Shackelford, Etc. Now Mary Hathaway's dead. You wish <laughs> she ain't dead. I'm about to say, <laughs> um, she's so likable. They have explained everything uh, to the town by saying that Whitewood was acting nefariously, kidnapping, murdering kids. Uh, 
they basically say that the original kids from the 80s are presumed dead, but the most recent four, which would be Ben, Josephina, Patrick, and April, are just presumed missing. With Whitewood on the may, lamb. Maybe being held someplace with with Whitewood. Again, this I'm, this I'm just giving you, this is all the stuff that the sheriff says at the end, just so your mind will be in the right place. Um, and the cult itself still believes that the seven lost causes are being purified by the one below. Uh, and that they will return as the seven shepherds. Poor Travis. They just don't know how long it's gonna take. Or maybe, I mean, you're mad at Travis because he, you know, he double-crossed him, but it's just, you know, it's just to use the parlance of the situation, it's the testimony to Whitewood's ability to manipulate um, that Travis, a guy who's like so genuine, such a good-hearted guy, in endeavor to deceive and you know to keep that from the the kids as much as he did yeah which which then you know is there a re, is there a rereading of the scene at the river you know that like what what does that tell you about Travis um if you if you take another look at that scene you know with the button i and i'm not it's not for us to answer. I'm just saying it's just okay. food for thought for the for the for the rereader. Uh, Travis is one of my favorite characters, by the way. Rex, California raisins. Rex, Leaf, Alicia, 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 and Hornhat, and all the other kids who were in the school, um, are compelled, effectively compelled, to remain quiet uh, for, for the fear that the sheriff or the cult will kill their parents, do other crazy stuff. And then anybody who decides that they're gonna say something could also be dismissed pretty easily because you got a bunch of traumatized kids that have been in this weird place that of course they're gonna say things about it. Uh, and then finally Janine and Donna, you know, they've got their, they've shown their film which has been interpreted by that initial audience as. A, pr- a precursor to Blair Witch, kind of, well not, not in a very loose sense. Yeah, a, basically a mockumentary a fictional documentary, not a true expose. Somebody did ask a question of why did you make that decision to do that and it's, well, it's because that we don't want the loop to, if all of a sudden it was like, and she makes a film and everybody sees that, they're all crazy murderous cult members, well then the case is closed on on that. We don't want the case to be closed. Yeah, I mean the cult successfully, you know, destroyed the most damning information. And so it, you're 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 left kind of like I'm not I really. I think it's the most it's it's a pretty reasonable response. I think it's like ah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is a marketing ploy, you know. Yeah. All right. Where does that leave us? Well, well ha- it, hashtag ear biscuits. First of all, if you want to continue this discussion, and if you want to join the mythical society, already remember make sure. Sh- Already, remember, make sure you talk about it on Discord. Yeah, because there's uh, some there's really chapter by chapter really great discussions happening. Discord. Conversations happening, and listen, we, like Link said, yes, we want to continue telling this story. The only way that's going to happen is if the book continues to be a success, and that requires the book to continue to break outside of this the community of mythical beasts. Of course, you guys have been super supportive, and many of you have bought it. Uh, but we need to we we need to demonstrate continued interest. And the fact that this thing is bigger than just the mythical beasts. So that means 
buying the book for somebody, um, encouraging them to read it. Maybe they don't, maybe this isn't, maybe you've tried to introduce them to the world of mythicality before but you sent them a video where we were eating animal testicles and that's not their thing. We do other things as we've hopefully demonstrated with this book uh, that I think are maybe even more accessible. So and did you say share le- the book? And did you say leave an Amazon review? I didn't say that. Um, yes, yeah, you it, should do that as well. That's a, that's a big help if you read the book or Goodreads as well. And so on Goodreads or Amazon, please leave a review of the Lost Causes of Bleak Creek. It it makes a difference, and we truly appreciate it. Um, I'm gonna give a quick wreck. I, I was telling you about this right beforehand. So shifting gears a little bit. I never. I've never listened to Jim James, lead singer of My Morning Jacket, but I started reading, I, I, I stumbled upon a song on his new album, solo album called The Order of Nature. Uh, the song that I listened to first is called Set It to Song, but this is um, uh, the Louisville Orchestra uh, and Teddy Abrams teamed up with Jim James to like make this song cycle. It's. It's unbelievable how this how this thing works, but like, let me. I'll just I'll just read a summary of this. He has so many albums, and they're all so distinct. And I I've just been introduced to the world of of Jim James, so I, I've just scratched the surface. You can come along with me. Um, a fully orchestrated song cycle titled "The Order of Nature," in which James pondered the roles of hatred and compassion in the natural world, is his latest album. Uh, recorded live with um, the Louisville Orchestra. That's pretty amazing. He's on tour, tour, I gotta, gotta try to see that. Well, he's gonna be in Denver on May 15th. Let's go to Denver. <laughs> Jim James. All right, hashtag Ear Biscuits. Let's keep the conversation going. Thanks for hanging out with us and for enjoying the spoilers. And we'll be here for another, how many episodes do we have left? Two additional episodes in 2019 and then we're going to take another two week break. Be back on January 6th. Cause your boys, your boys, boys gotta have a break. (laughs) And uh, yeah, we'll be back bigger and better than ever. Actually, it'll be exactly the same. Or will it? I don't think it will be actually.